What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. Back in New York, Central Park, where this random walk and talk started. I think I've done about 10 of these now. If you're new to this format, it's a bit of a weird way to start with uh, the Sweathead podcast. I basically take some questions, do some stream of consciousness thinking, hope that some of it's coherent, <laughs> and I do it while walking. Although what's funny is the last time I did this was about a week and a half ago in San Francisco. It was a beautiful day. I think it was a Tuesday, and I was down near the harbor. And I didn't walk that much as I was doing it. And I actually was leaning on some metal contraption, which was like a trash can or a garbage bin for people in other parts of the world. But it wasn't that. I was leaning on this thing in the hot summer day. I took my arm off it after 20 to 30 minutes. My whole forearm was red. I got welts, got these sores. So I basically burned myself, not only on my forearm actually, but also on the back of my neck as I was trying to make sense in the face of frequent incoherence <laughs> while recording this stuff for you. But, uh, you know, people keep saying to do it. And, uh, people seem to be listening. I don't know if you're listening from start to finish. We're just like, let me listen to five minutes of this and see how crazy this person is. <sighs> anyway, it's my talk therapy. Just talk at the world. While, as many of you know, the rest of the day, I might be silent <laughs> or writing. The other funny thing, actually, after San Francisco, so I'd, I'd, oh, just, I feel like I've been jet lagged for about two months now. My sleep's been really strange. And the funny thing is that the time difference between New York and the West Coast is, is three hours. And having grown up in Australia, where we often we travel, and you know that because you meet Australians in all sorts of weird places. Three hour, a three-hour time difference is not that intimidating to me. However, the number of times I've made that trip and the jet lag, it's just like, what? what's going on? Why am I awake at this time? Why aren't I asleep at this time? You know, if this was six hours difference or 12 hours difference, I'd be tough enough for that. And here I am getting messed around by a three-hour time difference. And so it's kind of funny because the past week, the week since I got back from San Francisco, having done London and uh, Copenhagen before that, I was like, my sleep's been all over the place. The other funny thing is, having caught up with the local strategy crew, and there's a strategy meetup that's kicking off over there. I'm, I wish I knew how to actually tell you how to find it. Find it. I think just Google San Francisco strategy meetup or look out for Lara Redmond, uh, Lexi Perez, Chelsea, and Helena. They uh, have kicked off this gathering over there and there was there were drinks at Moongate and if you were there and I didn't say hello sorry I'd been on my feet for eight hours that day talking and then had a couple of meetings I was talked out and you put me in a room like that and my introversion kicks in pretty heavily and I tend to just sit or stand in one place and despite my awareness of this it's a very difficult habit to break when I used to go to music events I was definitely there were times when I was up front but I was more of a wall flower uh I don't know, it's, just, it's that the, the sensitivities in the brain kicking kick in. And also I think it's a little bit of fight or flight from, you know, growing up a little inner city. I'm not an inner city kid, not saying I'm tough, martial arts and that, and just being on edge for a while. These things kick in and it's just, my brain's like, oh, safer to just be on the side, not to be in the middle. Which is funny, because creatively speaking, I'm trying to move to the middle. 
Oh, early episode metaphor. Deal with that. So, yeah, anyway, I came back from San Francisco. I've got a story about San Francisco, actually. I came back and I was watching The Wu Assassins, which takes place around Chinatown in San Francisco. Pretty good martial arts choreography, actually. It's on Netflix. And it was very funny because my hotel was like a couple of blocks from where a lot of that stuff happens. And it was beautiful. I got to tell you, it was beautiful in San Francisco. I've been there a bunch of times. I was wondering if I would live there one day. And the first time I went there, it was not that good a weather. And it did remind me a bit of parts of Australia, like Melbourne. And it's very different. And I thought, you know, I think I want to I think I want to go to a bigger city. So New York happened. Hong Kong, too much pollution. I'd heard stories of kids getting a lot of like lung issues. So I didn't want to do that. Singapore didn't have enough excitement for me. Felt a bit sterile. It's not, but I mean, maybe it is, you decide. And so New York. Never thought of London in a serious way. I've talked about that before won't get into it again uh but what was funny so after i recorded this i went to was it moma like the museum uh, modern art museum in san francisco and i checked out the andy warhol exhibition which is pretty cool it was pretty cool to look at and then i saw this tweet pop up and there was some interaction on twitter from musa Tariq at airbnb asking for lists of insights and the insight deck called Beat These Insights that the Sweathead community had produced together was shared. Thank you for that. I always get nervous about saying names because I get get them wrong and I forget things so sometimes I'm going to skip over names or sometimes I say the first name because I remember that but anyway, (laughs) Jake, um, thank you for sharing that and and Moose is like, oh if you're ever in town as in in San Francisco and can present it to my people, that'd be great so, you know, I'm a little spontaneous and I said, yeah I can do that, I'm here, I'll be there in an hour Moose took me up on it and I was over at Airbnb sharing the deck that the Sweathead community had produced and it was all a bit of fun Musa, we sort of known each other from distance, I think, on the internet, so it wasn't a completely cold interaction. However, he is a bit of a marketing rock star, and he was in his sharing of this, all these really interesting people popped up in my tweets. So it's kind of cool. I love that serendipity of the internet. It's, I've always loved that. And in the early days of Twitter, I think it was really a lot about that. And hopefully it returns to that. (laughs) It's still there. This week, sat down to actually start to edit my book. I'm close to like 75,000 words. Not that it's about having a lot of words. Uh, I sat down and wrote a lot of it through November to January, February. The first half was a lot of new material where I'm looking at the words that strategists use and trying to write some kind of absurdist philosophy about all these words such as meaning, truth, clarity, lone wolf, imposter. And then the second half of the book is trying to make sense of a lot of the training material that I have, but just write it in a way that's worth reading. It's called Strategy Is Your Words. And it's been a really cool process. Like, I think I found this voice. It's very difficult reading your words back sometimes. You're like, oh, God, where was I that day? What's the, does that even make sense? I did find, find a really good editor who tidied up some of the grammar. And then I have, like, a 1,000-plus comments from her. 
some of it's just, hey, I like this, and they're my favorite. No, I'm kidding. They're, no, they're definitely my favorite. Just when she writes, great, or ha, as in I made her laugh. I love those. Uh, and then they do what's called a sensitivity reading. Not they, I mean, Lauren, uh, Lauren Wilson, she did a sensitivity reading. And that's really funny, because sometimes there's a word, you know, if I use the word satanic, then she'll thoughtfully write something like, that might offend people who believe in Satan or who don't believe in Satan. Or, you know, it's thoughtful, it's not silly, and I appreciate it. The funniest part of the comments, though, is when I've written stuff that's actually autobiographical and self-deprecating, like about how odd I am, but she doesn't know me, and she doesn't know that. She's like, that might offend people. I'm like, that happened to me. That's me. <laughs> but I didn't use the word I, so I get it. So sensitivity reading in 2019, it's a thing. It's very interesting. Uh, but yeah, it is funny going... like. The workflow thing, I don't know if you've done your own creative projects like this, the workflow thing's just been a little bit of a mental block for me. I actually came back last year from Ireland, I'd been at the writers, Dublin Writers' Centre, I've been reading Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meeting, Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way, and I just sat down, I was like, do I want to, I know I want to write this book, I've been running, wanting to write this book and a few other books for years, what do I need to do? And I was like, okay, do you want to write it in pen, do you want to use the computer? And I was like, come on man, just sit down, open up Google Drive, and then I wrote Strategy Use Your Words, subtitle A Strategist Fight for Meaning, and I'm assuming this stuff's going to survive into public, I don't know. And then I wrote, you know, my, by, I put my name there, I was like, okay, we got a cover. And then I, used, I like to write or use a lot of paper and pen. So I sat there and I went, okay, I think I know what, what I want half the book to be. And if it's about words, what are the words? So the, the half that I knew was the stuff that is part of these mental workouts that I do, you know, the the go-to techniques that I have that I've some of them I've developed some of them I've borrowed some of them I've stolen uh, and then I was like okay well what are the other words that people are sharing with me or asking me about and I was like okay that's going to be the first half of the book I drew it on a page and then I just wrote the content contents or the outline on a page I was like oh god am I doing this right now day two I wrote the introduction which features Andrea Pirlo and Anigo Montoya from The Princess Bride and I was like, okay, I've, okay I'm start, I've started. What do I need to do? I just need to turn up and write. And so that was most of my winter. A lot of the books on writing talk about, you know, get your first draft out. Don't overthink it too much. Some people recommend not editing on the fly. So don't spend too much time editing yourself on the fly. Just get it out. Then do a basic edit. Then I found an editor to do some work with. And then I've left it for a couple of months. And I, I think Stephen King in On Writing on writing says to basically finish your writing and then put it in a drawer and leave it for as long as you can I want to get something out this year so then I sat down this week with another mental block which is I'm scared to finish it what if it's not good I get a little bit of trolling not that much compared to some of my peers and I'm like oh I can tell I know there's a certain type of person who will just be like picking at this but like I'm not writing it for them I'm writing it for the people who are listening to this right now and, you know, I've been collecting a few thoughts or, like, or principles behind the book. And I'm only sharing this in case it's useful to your own creative projects. This is not, I know it's a person talking into a microphone. It's not meant as an act of, like, crazy narcissism. I just like sharing thoughts in case you can use them. And if you can't, you're not going to listen, are you? So there are some thoughts that have been assembling as far as what I want to do. The first thing is... You know, obviously, like many of us, trying to move away from selling time. I don't sell time. 
and I want to move into more of an artist mindset slash entrepreneur, but like a, I'll say a major in artistry and a minor in entrepreneurship, if that's even a thing. When I talk to people about their work lives or their lives and what they want to do, I talk to them about which is your lead identity, artist, entrepreneur, or employee. And I think mine's an artist, and I, I think I, I hid from that in a while. I hid, in, I hid from that for a long time. If you're doing a radio show about music, you're making a magazine about music, you're doing strategy where other people execute it in public, it's, it's quite a vicarious life. So I think going back to the metaphor of stepping into the middle, that's, that's what I'm trying to do now. But to do that, you never know what's going to be successful. And the, the point of it isn't success. Or to, you need to reframe success. And for me, that's the creation of stuff. So I try to build my life around the creation of stuff. I like to go for long walks. I also like to create. How do I combine those things? Well, you're listening to it right now. I like to do silly drawings about strategies. So, you know, right now, sometimes I just sit down and write five drawings. Cool. And then, then, then because of that, because you don't know what's going to be successful, if it's a, and it depends how you define success, you need to create a catalog. A lot of people say that the best way to sell a book, for example, is to write another book. But here's the problem with books. A lot of friends I know who've done books, done B2B publishing through a publisher. They get a little bit of money as an advance, a couple of grand maybe. They no longer own their own content. The books aren't edited well, often. This is, I'm not dissing books or friends' books, but like the complaints I hear that they don't feel the book was edited well, they don't feel it was designed well, someone else chooses a title which is keyword-oriented so that it turns up on Amazon, and then there isn't much marketing support, and they no longer own their content. And I'm like, that's not very strategic. I think the average book sells 200. I don't know where that came from. Now, here's the other interesting piece of research that I came across and it was from an author doing a survey with her own audience so there's obviously bias in this and one of the questions was why do you buy books and the number one answer for this person was to support the author so you stack a few of these ideas together you want to create a catalog most business books don't sell I want to do it as, as self-expression I'm trying to take creative risks most people buy something to support the person doing it and I don't think any of these are absolute statements. It's just a, you know, a bunch of stuff that is forming this kind of operating system for me. So, what do you do with that? And how do you get through the next mental block, which is often for me a workflow or a process mental block? Okay, so if I make this book, then I've got to get it printed. And I did print magazines before, but it was always pretty stressful. I like the creation of stuff. And then I've got to distribute it. So now what I'm thinking, I don't think I'm going to do a Kickstarter. I might just make, like, have a goal of this year to publish a thousand hardcover books as a beta, beta, a first edition. It won't be perfect because nothing ever is. And then I'll sell them. And if I can sell a thousand, then I'll think about other formats. A book for the pocket, maybe an image-only book, so you can give it to your art directors. I love my art directors. Please love your art directors. They're getting squeezed out like so many other people, I think, right now. And when it's done exceptionally, oh my god, incredible. An exercise book. And maybe an e-book. And that's the thing, like, you look at the statistics on book sales, 
majority of book sales, from what I understand now, are through Amazon and digital. I need to double check that. I might just be making that up. But then I think through people like George Carlin and a few other comedians, some of whom we can't name, and you look at how they've built their creative practice. George George Carlin, for example, from what I understood, or what I understand, will create like an hour of material a year and potentially throw it out the following year and try to end the year with an HBO special. I hope that's correct. Other comedians didn't go through other people's channels. They wanted direct contact with people. So, I don't know. I'm just trying to keep it simple for myself, knowing what is a bit stressful, but using it as a creative constraint. And it'll work if people want it to work. <laughs> It's a pretty weird book, though. <laughs> Lots of strange, absurdist metaphors. Uh, I wrote a little creative brief, and yesterday, a design brief. Yeah, I wrote a design brief yesterday. I shared it with like 100 people who were interested in it through Instagram. And that's the other thing. If you want to keep, if you want to send questions, I'm currently doing it mostly through Instagram. Could do it through Facebook. It's just like I've said before, the Facebook interface is quite, it's quite. Uh, it's quite noisy, and the Sweathead community on Facebook has a, it's reaching 7,000 people. There's a lot of really useful stuff, but things do get lost. And so my, it's not a strategy, but my approach, at least in the short term, is intimacy. That should come as no surprise. The events I do, this, the book, 1,000 people buy this book. That's incredible. You know, that's, it's not that I would cry, but I would get quite emotional about it. Because most books don't sell. So fingers crossed. Uh, I believe in the content. It's changed my life. That's autobiography. Doesn't mean it's going to change anybody else's life. It's history versus future. But hopefully you'll be into it. Um, yeah, so that was a bit of a ramble. But again, I often try to pull back into first principles of things. So if you listen to that, then think about the things you're trying to do in life. Pull it back to first principles. If I'm a little bit foggy and if I can get to a piece of paper... Because there are days where I'm foggy for weeks <laughs> and I'm like, oh, dude, get to your words, do a talk. And then I hear myself or I see my words. I'm like, okay, I'm back, I'm back. And sometimes I'll just write, you know, what are the 10 principles that I'm trying to apply in life right now? Or why am I writing this book? Or why am I recording myself walking around a park in New York? How strange. Um... Heading off to Brazil this week as well. If you're, if you're coming, there are a couple of events. One's a big Facebook event, so hopefully meet a lot of the Brazilian planning community. It's going to get live streamed. I guess it's going to be in English with Portuguese translations, a live stream. You could go, I'm not sure exactly. If I can find the link, I'll share it. From what I've seen, there's a link that's being shared by Facebook in Brazil to sign up to the mailing list of the local, I think it's the APG, it's in Portuguese, but if I can find a link, I'll share it and we might live stream it, or I might be able to share the link of the live stream, it's with Julian Cole. Most of the focus is going to be on communications planning, and then we're going to do a live action strategy sesh with some local talent, and then on Friday, so it's Thursday, and then on Friday, we've got a strategy supersize a mega class, a bunch of people coming in from around South America. Brazil has proven very difficult. Someone told me that Brazil is not for amateurs. I totally understand that. It's been very difficult to work out how to set up ticket sales and get things happening. 
but I mean the country has such energy I know there's a lot of issues going on there talking to people about social and political situation uh, the wealth gap various things but uh, yeah hopefully get to see you we might do a meetup. I think if you're in Brazil, check out Planners BR. It's a Facebook group as well in Portuguese, largely for the Brazilian community. But if we do a little meetup with Planners BR through Yuren Ramiro, you can find out details about it there. Also, I want to give a shout out to Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Chat Day New York. I interviewed him this week. I'm excited to share that with you. We sort of circled each other on the internet for a while, on and off as well. And I think he came across me again recently on Instagram and <laughs> listened to the walk and talk I did when I was walking up from Bryant Park while walking his dog, I think in the West Village. And TBWA Day have on paper had a really amazing turnaround. I haven't been in there, so I'm not going to say it has, but on paper it, it's had an amazing turnaround. And interviewing Rob... He's got his sound bites intact, he's very thoughtful, he knows what he wants to do, and I love this. He wrote a two-page business plan before he took that role, and he's letting me share it, so I'm going to publish that online when I publish the interview in the next week or two. Uh, he also shared, which I can't share, he also shared, a, I think it's a Harvard or Omnicom University case study about the turnaround, which is, I'm not going to, I can't talk about it, it's amazingly candid. Um, and if you're trying to work out how to do an agency turnaround, if you can find Rob or at least listen to the interview, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about agency turnarounds. Send that to your bosses. If you are the boss, I hope you can extract first principles from it. It's really, really interesting. Um, but also, you know, I talk a bit about how, like, I need momentum. I need to make stuff and do stuff, and I never know where it's going to end up. Yeah, but and I, I do say no to things, but I do say yes to things. And like Airbnb was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's go. Spontaneous. Doing a walk and talk led me to interviewing Rob Schwartz and finding out about that amazing turnaround. And now I get to share it with you. Or I get Rob to share it with you. And I think it's going to help a lot of your companies. And that, you know, if I just stayed at home and was frustrated or was working 60 hours a week in somebody else's company being frustrated. It's not always about frustrated, but you know what I'm talking about. Talking about these things wouldn't happen autobiography always dangerous but see what happens do the next thing do the next thing feeling stuck do the next thing it's me talking to myself not you my people over in san francisco doing the strategy meetups do the next thing put a date in i did a walk yesterday with victor pinheiro who some of you will know spent 10 years at big spaceship we worked together he's one of the loveliest guys you'll ever meet and uh, we did a walk around Central Park, about a lap and, I called it a lap and a quarter. And I did a little bit of extra walking that day. 11.3 miles equals 29,262 steps. My legs were sore. Vic said he was up till 2.30 in the morning because his legs were so sore. <laughs> it's surprising how this walking gets you. And we're, we're thinking of creating a little games company. Vic's exceptional at it. I love creating weird things. We walked, we talked, we got to the heart of some stuff, and it reminded me that I'm actually going to invite the Sweathead community to come for a walk and talk with each other, with us, 
before it gets cold. So keep an eye on Sweathead and Facebook if you want to come for a, a walk around Central Park. It's just so good, like it's so fruitful. Not just like physiologically, but just ideas and thoughts string themselves together. You're looking at a tree and all of a sudden you're like, got an idea for a new book. Well, I don't know. And I'd, I'd like to believe that you more, the more that you do it, you loosen up your brain a little and then you reconnect things, the more that interesting things can happen. I'm also going to post some scenarios and talk more about scenarios because I get around a little bit and I feel like there are some really common scenarios out there. One of the common... And, and when I do this, it's not... Like an, uh, it's not a non-name and shame, as in I'm not posting these scenarios to passively, aggressively call people out. You know, I assume, I try to assume good intentions a lot of the time. But I get around and I hear a lot of situations that sound quite similar. One of the big, one of the big scenario, the, the next scenario I'm going to post this week in the Facebook group is about what I see in and this is not specific i know people be like hey that's exactly what we've talked about i'm like yeah but it's not just you and i'm not doing it to like out anyone it's just it's it's real and it causes challenges for people but there's obviously a bit of tension in but like outside of the agency world where you might have in-house agencies with quote-unquote creatives especially in tech companies that are engineering or engineer-led with product marketing managers and then lots of agencies around them and trying to work out how to get to better briefs like who owns the brief what do people want sometimes in the again this is not about anyone in particular sometimes in the in-house agency teams there are people who are who might have really big titles like creative director etc who aren't necessarily conceptually trained which to me is what a creative director is. But they think they are. And then there can be people writing briefs who've done it for a couple of years, but they're more marketing briefs that are copied and pasted into creative brief templates. And in general, sometimes these groups aren't strategy trained or like creatively trained. And it can lead to like this weird tension where everyone's like, surely we can do better, but also people are confident so it's like other people are, may, might be the problem so that's the scenario I'm going to post about this week I repeat it's not to be mean and if you hear yourself in these things it's not you I see this in tens of places talk about it with tens of people the scenario that I did post is this I'll read it to you have a think about it and then I'll read you some answers from the sweathead group so here's a scenario. Strategy is new to your agency. You are one of two strategists. You both, and you can switch the words, like, sorry, you can switch the word strategist for account planner. It's fine. In the US, I use the word strategist more. It's just, I don't know, better known. Okay. Strategy is new to your agency. You are one of two strategists. You both have just a couple of years experience. It's not that things weren't working before you joined. The creative output was solid, but the owners wanted to bring in strategy to access bigger budgets, do better work, charge more hours. The challenge is 
like this. The owners are from creative backgrounds. They're very hands-on with the work and they haven't worked with many strategists before. In fact, they see themselves as the strategists. What's more, you've only had one other strategy role, so you aren't quite sure what's normal and what's possible. What do you do? number of people who've like sent me messages or even posted in response to that saying this is my life or it was my life it's a lot relatively speaking that's a real situation and even if it's not an, an exact situation for you chances are you aren't that far away from somebody who feels like that someone who's trying to do strategy work wants to do it loves the idea of the role <laughs> reads all the books about it listens to the podcasts about it reads the APG, J Triad, FE award entries, is like, that's what I want to do. And then they think they've joined a company saying, that, that's saying, that's what we want to do. And then they get there and they're like, oh gosh, it feels so crowded. How do I get in on this? It's hard to change. It's hard to change a company. So I'm going to read a couple of answers to you. Once, and I'm going to mention names where I think it's okay to mention names. And I'm mostly looking at the number of reactions that people have the number of likes or yeah, reactions that people have had to the actual response. So Craig Wood says, says, work closely with the creative directors to assume, to assure them that you are their friend and only there to help make and sell better work. The creative directors are strategists. If they're not, they shouldn't be creative directors and any strategist that doesn't realize this should find another career. Add value all the time. Work so closely with the creatives that they see all the help that insights and strategy can provide, fuel their creativity constantly through case studies, examples, and inspiration, look outside the category, help sell the work, and stop seeing strategy and creative as separate things. If you're not creative, you shouldn't be a strategist, and if you're not strategic, you shouldn't be a creative. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's gonna sound vague if, if you have not been around the industry for a long time, but I think at the heart of that is that overlap between strategy and creative. I talk a lot about how I think strategy is a creative discipline because creativity is bringing things together that don't usually belong together. That's what a strategist does. You write a single-minded proposition, a brand essence, whatever you're doing, you're hopefully combining two things or more, such as what's unique and motivating about the company together with an insight about humans. At least that. The other thing that Craig, I think, is talking to is that Aikido energy. Like, where's the energy going right now? And if it, look, if the energy's going left, you're not just going to be able to, like, stand in front of it, have it bounce off it, bounce off you, redirect it so that it's going exactly where you want it to go. So you've got to work out how to kind of, like, try to understand how people get status and a sense of achievement within the company and then help them do that. And never be ashamed of this question. What's one thing I can add to this project that's going to just help it do better? Never be ashamed of that question. It's a, I think it's a brilliant question. Because otherwise you're just going to be like, uh, you're trying to like, do, you might end up trying to do Hail Marys on every single project. Or, I've written a brief, here's the brief. And they're like, yeah, we don't even like briefs. Or maybe it's a style thing, or your words aren't connecting with them. Or maybe the people you're working with aren't kind of word-oriented people. But trying to understand the energy and just adding one thing that can help other people do better. And eventually, you'll f that's, maybe that's where you find your heroism. 
uh, Malte Odesso. Little snarky, sarcastic thing here, mate. It's all good. Talk weird stuff about AI and programmatic to build up a smart image. That's sarcasm. Don't do that. Uh, do both. Do Boss Cole own the discussion of human behavior that unlocks great creative. Try to show that when they know intuitively that try to show that what they know intuitively can be more explicitly discussed and sold into clients to get approval on better work. I think that makes sense. There's also a few answers in there. I, I, I won't name names. You can the, the names are public within the group, but I'm not going to put it here. There are a few people in there who are like, this is exactly what happened to me, and I. I tried to make it work and then I was made redundant or I went crazy doing it. I should have left earlier. It's very difficult, you know. You can absolutely meet with optimistic people who are like, no, you just got to keep doing this, this and that. But then even if... Uh, I remember when I interviewed Agathe Guerriere who runs strategy at BBH in LA. She talked about like, look, if it's not working, get out. That's okay. But you have to decide that. There's no right or wrong. Sometimes things do come around later sometimes they don't it's difficult someone's always going to have an opinion uh, when I interviewed Sudeep Gohill a lot of his career was based on five year stints that's great that worked for him but if you're six months in, I've left a few places like <laughs> six to nine months in because I felt there was no constructive conversation or no honest conversation about what was going on and I f felt there was a lot of toxicity but also I'm a bit idealistic in my mind I just want to turn up do good work with good people idealist so there are a bunch of other answers there uh, here's one from Fergus Carroll organize a call with a creative director they respect that respects planning and has su seen success with it it's a good idea deliver on planning's promise, get out into the real world and bring the customer an opportunity to life, not some shoot made up in the office. Francois Miro, you ask the creative teams, what can I do for you guys? Do you need better briefs, better rollout plans, working sessions with me when you get stuck, inspiration from around the world, a competitive order, point of views from the, for the client, selling work to clients, arguing on the phone with media. I'd start by fixing a couple of real issues and slowly spot where Strat has leverage on the work output. Could be different depending on teams, context, clients, budgets. When I published this interview with Rob Schwartz, he talks about, you know, he's a prolific creative director, now CEO, and he talks about how it's a it can be a very difficult relationship working with a strategist, but he does mention a particular person. He's like, that person was great getting to a brief. They were often in the room with us working on problems, not leading that that kind of the idea part of the work and then they were great at uh, selling it in and making sure it was all good it sounds simple that's what I would have <laughs> expected in most places but I don't think it's that common if you can get that if you've got it appreciate it pass it on let me see if there's one more well this <laughs> so I don't want to mention names around the snarky ones Ugh. I mean it's not snarky it's just like they're super candid and I didn't ask you if I could say these things in a broader public hmm. 
Susan Kelly says, everyone in this scenario is focused on the creative. Instead, focus on the client understanding their business and earning that trust to get bigger briefs. They focus on their bigger and more interesting problems. Kaylee Cantrell adds to that. My hunch is that the creative owners realize they need to get farther upstream to where Susan's more interesting problems are and the longer term business potential is. This is where a solid strategist is building the bridge between the two. Being smart about the business and identifying the right problems to solve doesn't mean the work goes to hell. It helps the clients to let the agency participate more, offer more what ifs. I've seen a lot of people talk about how companies often bring in junior strategists without a lot of training and then wonder why it doesn't work. Like it, it can be, it doesn't have to be, it can be difficult if you're in your early 20s, for example, to have people in their 30s and 40s take you seriously and want to talk to you about in detail about their business. Some people can achieve it. But maybe it's, a, you know, maybe they've got to bring in someone more senior to help those conversations happen. So I'll post another scenario about the creative brief inside companies that aren't used to creative briefs this week and curious to see what you all think. I do have some questions from Instagram. This one's come up a few times actually. Faye Yoinko, and I don't mention names, it's just because it's difficult going back and forth. I can't just export this stuff easily from Instagram, not that I know of. You know what's also really funny? The long walks I've been doing, like the one I did yesterday, my thighs have been chafing. Like I'm not a big guy. Definitely got some chafe going on. Burning down there. Too much information. Uh, Faye Yoinko asks, any tips on moving to a new market? I think any time you move, first of all, enjoy it. It's an experience. Like, and how amazing is it that you are able to be in a career where you get to do that? Not to get dark on you too quickly, but I think it's worth thinking through, like, what are you leaving behind and why? Are you running from something? What are you running from? What are you running to? It's very easy to, like, lose a lot of your social ties. I had a friend move to France when I was, how old was I, 18 or 19, and he said, like, for the, and he's a super gregarious, extroverted guy, social butterfly, and he said as soon as he announced he was moving to France from Australia, he felt for, like people just stopped like interacting with him it wasn't that he was dead he's not that dark but you know you gotta maintain those social ties so that's my main tip and then create new social ties i think that's really important you need social support and if you use your head to earn money chances are like many of us you can spend way too much time there you forget to move around, you develop bad habits, you stop taking care of yourself, you're not eating well, you're trying to like work really quickly, uh, work a lot, work long hours. There's another beautiful phrase, I'm not sure where it's come from, I've heard it a bunch over the years, which is like start how you want to finish. So if you want to be doing regular hours, do you really need to go in for three months and do 70 hours a week? I also think it'd be useful to, for you to develop your own research. Either projects or just make sure you're exploring the city that you move to or the place that you move to, learning about it, so that you're not coming in with really obvious, quote unquote, insights about the market. Dog yawn, can you tell me something you've never told anyone about your work? 
Well, dog yawn. I do put a lot of words out there, so that's a difficult question for me to answer. I think the one that pops up every now and then is, for all the stuff that I've put out into public, not feeling sorry for myself, I don't have grievances here, all the stuff I've put out into public over the years, whether it's this kind of stuff, strategy stuff, hip-hop stuff, it's, and so that's my work, all of that. It's surprising how people that I've known for a long time that I'm related to take no interest in it. <laughs> and every now and then I'm like, does that hurt? Does that hurt? I don't know. It sort of hurts because that's who I am. <laughs> and that's also why when I travel, I try to catch up with people in this wacky world we're in. I'm like, they're my people. I get it. Bunch of weirdos with overactive brains trying to exist in the world trying to do good thing, create stuff. So there you go. That's one thing that I don't know if I've communicated before. Maina Croy, what are the most effective ways of research slash to understand your audience? Very difficult question because we all have the things that we like to do. I like to interview people. I like to do it on the phone. It feels more confessional to me. Once you start to accept that everyone has biases, everyone's in a bubble, can you really ever get through that bubble? Because you're just going to see a bubble within a bubble within a bubble, and then you're going to pick the bubble, write about the bubble. Someone else could come in and say, you don't know that bubble very well. There's another bubble inside that bubble. I saw that bubble, but there's another one inside that. So you kind of get this weird postmodernist, post-structuralist, post-constructionist mindset going on. So I just like to talk to people, just listening for words that I haven't heard before. So many people have so many numbers right now. And yet, the creative work we're doing doesn't seem to be that much better for it. I do like to go to Google Scholar and gouge on behavioral economics papers. And you can do that for things like sneakers. How do people buy sneakers or fashion? Altruism, donating. Sometimes it takes a minute to discover the taxonomy that the academics use. And then you're like, oh my gosh, this person's been studying this stuff for 10 years. And you find silly stuff. One example that I have mentioned before, I found this paper a few years ago, and it said that when men shop for clothes, when they get touched by a female, obviously this is heteronormative, heterosexual men, when they get touched by a female, they're more likely to buy. Don't know if that's repeated or if it's been debunked. But I'm like, interesting, could I use it? Not sure, but I'll collect it. So... The things that I have that I usually go for are behavioral economics papers. Uh, I'm a, I have a heavy leaning towards qualitative. There can be really interesting quant stuff that can come from social, but sometimes spending a day or two or more just going through consumer reviews and trying to understand the language that the people are using, the pain points they have, the needs they have, the types of people, their self-described stories, which yes, you're going to have bias and going to come from a bubble, yes. It's not that intelligent to point that out all the time. But I find that stuff pretty useful and interesting. Phone interviews. I used to love looking at the search keywords, but that's less, you know, since the rules change, I find it a little less interesting. Google Trends can be interesting. You can also see planners use Google Trends in very sloppy ways. I don't know if this still happens, but just like... Look, people search for bananas in July, therefore, and the therefore is like not even really connected to bananas in July and you're selling beer. I don't know. You know what I mean. You've seen it. You've done it. We've all done it. 
I might be doing it right now. Uh, Zinni K, do strategy jobs exist in Asia, especially for non-expat local residents? So do strategy jobs in, exist in Asia for locals? I would hope so. Asia is a pretty big place. There are lots of strategists there. Listen to the interview with Shan Biglioni from Zenith, talking about China. He'll give you a take on it. Like many places, it just sounds like a lot of people doing strategy work are finding it hard to kind of latch onto anything right now. What he was saying is that because things have been growing so much in China, they're like, well, we don't need to overthink this, just execute, boom, boom, boom. You know, I hear, of sorry, all these stories and anecdotes come up and I'm like, oh, I can't say that, that's too specific. But look, I, they, they exist, surely they exist. And if not, make them exist. Faker Jagan from Nashville, who thinks I have an English accent, even though he's a big fanboy of Keith Urban, who's Australian, and he knows that I'm Australian because we've spent a day and a half together, haven't we, Jake? Jake? I saw that on the internet, Jake. Julian Cole is also Australian. This accent that you're hearing right now is Australian. I could go broad. If I'm back home, I'd probably go broad after a few drinks. Mate, a bit more nasal. Australian Jake. The question is, how do you charge for strategy? I'm assuming that's you as in me. So I don't sell time. And what I've thought about a lot is like, well, how do I actually like to do it? And I have a few packages. It depends on the needs as well, but I have a few packages that are like my go-to packages. You know, really range from... You want numbers, don't you? I might put all this stuff up on the internet one day if I get bold. I would say five to 25 grand. Don't really sell retainers. There's a strategy bat phone that I do, which is sort of for coaching and for looking at briefs. Uh, the packages, the, the general packages, the prices differ based on the number of interactions and the number of deliverables. Uh, and the interactions and deliverables include things such as whether I do research, how many people I speak to, how many stakeholders, internal, how many consumers or customers do I talk to, do I have, am I writing a difficult discussion guide, discussion guides aren't difficult, but am I writing a discussion guide, do I have a lot of documents to digest that exist already, can I just write a simple debrief in Google Doc, like a Word, Microsoft Word type Google Doc, well, I don't even know what you call that, I think they need names. Um, and if they have names, I use this stuff every day and I don't know the names. How embarrassing for someone. So is there a debrief? Do I have to do a presentation for the debrief? I don't do a lot of presentations, not that I can't. It's just that most companies I work with, I, like we trust each other enough to know that like a page of a debrief with 14 to 15 pages of supporting quotes organized under the synopsis is enough, you get it. Then strategy stories, which are these, I hope there's not too much wind on the microphone, which are these one page, kind of like, they sound like a case study before it happens, pre-case study. The, the arguments that I use to actually build out my strategy thinking. So I do a whole bunch of hand-drawn stuff, grab words, go for a walk, and then I sit down and write these one page strategy stories. Am I writing a creative brief? How many of them? Usually, and also with the strategy stories, I'll do three. I've done up to seven on one project. 
and I think they were each sent into testing. They're this weird mix of, for some people, they, they sound a little bit like a narrative. They're not meant to be a manifesto. They're just like the argument based on the research that we've done that helped me lay out problem inside advantage strategy. And sometimes even the four C's, consumer truth, category truth, company truth, cultural truth. And then get to like a clean strategy statement, maybe with a single-minded proposition. Uh, and then I'll usually do a short presentation for the one that we choose because I, what I love to do if I can is to go in and sit with someone who's very senior and get them to close their eyes. And then I read the strategy stories to them. I'm like, what stuck with you? It's different interaction if there's like a group of 10 people involved. Uh, and then other, you know, the other outputs that I do is taglines. CEO presentations based on the research that we've done, social posts, um, sometimes helping executives write for the internet based on the interview that we did. It's like it's a form of ghostwriting, but I'm really just trying to sharpen up their language or s see the interview that we did because you know I can collect fifty to seventy thousand words doing research, and then there's like three main packages, and the prices change based on number of interactions and outputs so that's how I charge for it is it vulgar talking about money I want to do more of it but it's you just always feel like you get, someone's gonna rip you off you're gonna get punished for it I do have ideas on this so look I hope that's useful uh, every now and then I talk, I'm open to doing it every now and then as long as people take responsibility for what they do after people who start freelancing who are selling themselves in for the first time you know I'd work with someone I just, I just had a quick look at a scope I was like I think you could charge differently for this and change the interaction the way that you're interacting the number of interactions charge more for it and they ended up charging I think twice as much as they were going to charge and the client said yeah now it's not that I'm trying to like gouge people for money but like, like I think there's good value in what we do so that's you know I'm not a a robber baron <laughs> trying to be easy to work with charge reasonable rates but you know I'm not charging 50 bucks an hour not that there's anything wrong with that but if you're helping a company that's worth millions of dollars redefine what it's about and get clearer on that it's definitely worth a different kind of money and, and honestly some of the work that I do right now in big companies that I've been in they would in America at least and I know if you're not in America you'll be mortified and yeah, kind of mortified by some of these numbers but it could be 100 grand 200 grand I've seen presentations that have come out pretty well known innovation slash strategy companies for half a million dollars I'm like that's not worth half a million dollars it's a bunch of drawings bunch of desk research I was quite amazed yeah so look I, please, please don't listen for arrogance and uh vulgarity in sharing this stuff I kind of want to help people and it's in the interest of clients you know we want to work with people who can sustain themselves because when they can sustain themselves they'll do better work for you right that's the theory There's a bunch of other deliverables that I can do and sometimes do, customer journeys, personas, etc. I know people debate whether these things are useful or when they're useful, uh, but I focus mostly on brand strategy to get to creative briefs and things like that now in research. Mihao Idzi, perception of non-native people working in English-speaking countries, brutal truth, please. Well, I think it does depend a bit on your standard of English. There is 
going to be some kind of stigma. I would like to think that the stigma is less than it would have been 10 years ago, let alone 20 years ago. And don't forget that while it might be sometimes stressful in the industry, while you, while you and your friends might be made redundant from time to time, while you might see people older than you getting made redundant and struggling to actually get back into the industry with big mortgages and kids trying to get to college and health problems in the family that they've got to pay for. There are a lot of opportunities for people out there as far as other industries. I've been very fortunate, you know, maybe if I'm 18, 19 right now, if I'd grown up in the US, I don't know if I would get into advertising. <laughs> if you, but you know, it's not to talk it down, I'm not doing that. But the options here are crazy. And the level of specialization you can do in America, at least, is like nowhere else in the world, I'd, I'd argue. So there's going to be some baggage there. I think you've got to have a reasonable level of English. Like if people are struggling to understand you in meetings, you know, that's people are going to get, especially with a lot of pressure, time pressure, I mean, is it, is, is it fair as well to the company or to other people? Unless you're a really good writer or find other ways to communicate. So there'll be some baggage. I don't know. I don't have any stats on that. Uh, Lucas Moraes, any advice for young planners that want to leave the agency and start going solo as creative strategists? Well, whenever people bring this up, I spent a little bit of time freelancing as a producer, actually, in my 20s, just after I had my first kid. And then I took a job as a planner at Leo Burnett in Sydney with a gentleman called Todd Sampson. So I've done that freelance stuff. But I'm, I've sort of, my, most of my 20s was some kind of some full-time work, but also a lot of part-time and freelance work, writing for magazines, doing my own stuff, often while working in agencies by day, or even part-time. I mean, I was super lucky, travel DDB in Sydney. In Ultima, used to let me come and work out of their office, and I, they would commit to like 20 hours a week of work for me as a producer when I was still pretty active with my magazine and martial arts. I trained nearby up in Surrey Hills, so I'm kind of, kind of comfortable with that freelance world, but what I do, ask people to consider is this I go back to what I said earlier do identify more you can be all these things you can be whatever you want congratulations do you identify more as an artist an entrepreneur or an employee I feel like a lot of freelancers people going part-time even consultants even people who set up their own companies or even people who like buy pizza franchises they're kind of just giving themselves a job Selling time for money, maybe, is one way to look at it. Someone doing a pizza, pizza franchise is not really doing that. But if there's inflexibility, selling time for money, it resembles more of an employee type of situation. There are many ways to define these words. You can define entrepreneur however you want. The way that I would look at it in this situation is it someone who's trying to build a system, a business with repeatable ways of working that can scale with an eye of selling at some point. Many different ways to define that word. That's why I look at it in this triad, this forced choice. And an artist is someone who is trying to live a life focused on craft, where that craft is trying to bring some kind of profound truth into the world. So think about that. 
The thing with going freelance is it can be a limbo for some people. It just depends on what your financial needs are and you will have to recalibrate your attitude towards money, time and risk. Are you looking at money by the week, by the month, by the year, by five years? If you have a quiet phase for three months, let's say in the Northern Hemisphere, for example, let's say it's quiet in summer and then it's quiet around December to March, December to February. Is that okay for you? How much money do you need to get through? Are you going to simplify your life? Or are you going to like have lots of kids and get a big mortgage, have a big house, and you need all that stuff fulfilled? So you've got to think through time, money, and risk and attitudes towards those three things. You've got to think about whether you're hiding, whether it's limbo. Because the thing is, as you freelance, you'll come across people who are used to convincing you to do what they want. <laughs> They'll, you know, people will flatter you. Join a collective or join my company. You have to be very clear about whether, like, why you're doing what you're doing. Are you setting yourself up just to, t just to try something new, to test different companies, and if you find something good, you're going to take it? Great. Be honest with yourself about it. Because a lot of the people who are in positions of uh, power, they're very good at saying, they'll get you in. Oh, do you want a job? I'll give you a job. It's cheaper for them. Well, they might really like you as well. Like, it's all these things. But they can be uh, leaning towards wanting to own people if people are in established companies in positions of power even though when I talk to a lot of them they know it's difficult to own the odd crazy people because they get they, a lot of them feel stifled in companies so there's a bunch of things to think through there what I would suggest is a bit of surprise surprise stream of consciousness writing right on a page or a few pages and then condense it on a page why are you doing what you're doing what are you about what do you want to do try to find the theme within that so that when people approach you to work you can say, this is how I work. This is how I sell myself. Do you want to buy that? And in being that committed to yourself, two things will happen. Some opportunities will disappear. And a whole other world might open up. That's like, oh, get it. Yep, totally. I'm into that. If you're kind of freelancing as a bit of an arming and an narring exercise, be aware of it. Maybe you need to challenge yourself just to put a stake in the ground, even if you move that stake. <laughs> Oh, so many metaphors. Even if you move that stake in a year or two. Okay, I think this might be the last question for today. I wanted your advice on something. I'm currently a strategist based out of a small agency in a small town in the Midwest. For the next step in my career, I really want to move to a bigger agency on the East Coast, but since my resume lacks well-renowned brands, I'm having a tough time breaking into the bigger agency world. What steps should I take to be able to find a job in the bigger agencies as a strategist? Yeah, look, we there can often be snobbery in major cities towards people not in those cities. It's, it happens in England, it happens in all, all over the place in America. So, my soundbite on this, my talking point, is the act of intellectual brinkmanship. Every now and then people like, will ask me to look at a CV. CVs are kind of useful, but if you're going into like a big agency, the HR function, the recruiting function, it's like, oh, it's difficult. 
you know, people are excited to meet you, then everything goes quiet for a month. Or you're dealing with someone who's not that experienced in the industry, who's, who's got to act like, who has to act like they are, say the right things, but they don't know what they're talking about. And especially in, in, <laughs> in some parts of the world, they're like looking for the exact, they're looking for a specialist or they're looking for someone who has two particular things as opposed to saying, oh my God, this person has been doing strategy for three years and they've written comics and they know trees. They study trees for ages. That's really interesting. All that stuff could come together in a really wild and wacky way. I don't think the US HR slash recruitment world in general is set up to, um, to be patient with that. So, intellectual brinkmanship, have, have work somewhere in the world, which could be professional work, business work, where you're writing case studies that are, that are very clear-headed and bold. None of this big language stuff. And then create your own projects because you love doing this stuff. And then you hope that those things get shared. Uh, then you can network and then you need a, b a bunch of luck. But you got to have a brain that people are like, I want to look at that brain face to face. What's that all about? I don't think that's a high benchmark. So I hope that was useful. I won't mention your name in case that was <laughs> private. Oh gosh, that was like an hour's worth, right on an hour. Uh, look, I don't know if you, how many of you listened to the whole thing or at all, but well, the, the numbers are like, I don't know, it's surprising in a lot of respects, but I hope there's some useful stuff there. I have been threatening. I, I do think I have a voice that can put people to sleep. So if you're listening to this as you sleep or get, trying to go to sleep, I hope you're asleep right now. Maybe sometime I'll actually record myself reading something that will get you to sleep, some weird hypnotic strategy stuff. It's like the, the power of an Australian monotone voice. See you in Brazil this week if you're there. New York, October 4, the strategy supersize Omega class. Hopefully my book will be ready around then, probably a little bit later, probably November. And oh, for Aussies, I'm going to be in Australia around the 23rd of October. I might do an event if I can get the book ready. We're going to do the mega class next year. I think there's just been, I've had a lot of travel. It's quite tiring. It's, it's amazing. But there, yeah, sometimes I wake up in places. I'm like, where, where am I? What's going on? Who am I? And then you're on your feet for like, what, six to eight hours sometimes or more, which I love, which I love. But I think we'll do Australia probably, probably next year. But like I said, kind of curious about doing an event there on the 20th, I'm thinking of the 23rd of October. Just got to think about what it is, if people will come, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, see you on Instagram, at Mark Pollard. See you in Sweathead on Facebook. Lots of really good interviews coming up. I feel like there's been a really good batch lately. I always, I, it's not that I always feel that way, but like, I think there's been some really interesting chats. If you're into research, check out the one with Farrah Bostic. If you're into research or selling strategy or running a strategy agency, check out the recent interview with Tom Trenta in Chicago. Laura Baumbach is amazing. She's an Aussie done good in the UK. Co-founder of She Says, past president of D&AD, CCO of Mr. President. Listen to that interview as well. And uh, yeah, if you stay tuned this, this long, thank you. I always appreciate your messages. Go for a walk, make some art. Yeah, baby. Peace.